Welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. The Recovery Executive Podcast is the only podcast for executives, owners, and directors within the field of recovery and addiction treatment. As always, the Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., growth experts within the face of recovery and addiction treatment, uh, far more than a marketing agency. They help not just with inquiry generation and admit generation, but the full process of working with people coming to your center from alumni programming to admissions operations to professional referral builds and business development. Anything and everything that you need to grow your center and reach and help more people. Today I'm interviewing Jason Tuchinski. He's the National Director of Business Development for Daylight Detox and Recovery Centers in Florida. And we are specifically talking about math. Uh, as we all know, math is a very controversial topic within the field. We explore it in a way that I, I think is open and balanced and hopefully provides a lot of insight into reasons to look at it both from a treatment perspective as well as a business perspective, because it's certainly a trend that is here to say, stay. And it's not to say that abstinence models um, have to change or that we need to look at that. There are certainly value for them and that's going to continue to be the case. But part of this podcast and what the interview seeks to do is to give information about some of the pros and cons that are happening with Matt, because there are certainly a lot of negative um, issues out there and dangers that are happening as well. But at the same time, you know, even Hazleton has embraced Matt, you know, Hazleton being the original model for most addiction treatment centers and their abstinence-based approach. Uh, and we even look at that, you know, is Matt really um, at odds with an abstinence-based approach? You know, it really depends on how you set it up. So Jason and I will cover a lot of different issues. You know, even if you have kind of made up your mind about Matt, I encourage you to listen with an open mind. Again, we're not trying to convince you either way. That's not the purpose of this interview or the podcast. Uh, we just really want to discuss this topic because it's, it is a trend that's very much uh, front and center in the field. Uh, it's also legislation um, or legislators are pushing it a lot. And I think reinsurance or insurance reimbursers are also really at the forefront of driving some of this. So as owners and directors, we need to look at our centers and say, okay, is this something that's appropriate for my center to look at? Why or why not? And when we have all the information, we can make good decisions. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Hey, Jason, how are you doing today? Good. I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? I'm doing really well. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, so everyone, as I mentioned, I'm with Jason Tushinsky. He's the National Director of Business Development and Strategy for Daylight Detox and Recovery Center. And he is also a personal health and wellness coach. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Do you want to give us a little bit more about your background? Absolutely. I actually uh, graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee with a bachelor's degree in marketing. Um, and then after I came down to Florida, I went and got my I became a certified addiction professional as well um, in my venture and journey within this field, uh, which has a lot of passion behind helping the individuals that suffer from the disease of addiction. Um, and I've, I've worked tirelessly with a lot of good clinicians, very good medical staff and, and doctors and um, trying to create solutions uh, for these patients to have access to the best healthcare possible. That's awesome. So, you know, today I have you on the show because we're talking about MAT, you know, medically assisted treatment, which is a very controversial um, aspect of the field. Right. And so that's really what I want to dig in today. 
but I don't think I, I mentioned to you before, I'm actually from Wisconsin originally as well. So I'm from Oshkosh. So <laughs> no a, kidding. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting <laughs> connection there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, okay, let's jump right in. Um, so there's been a lot of research around MAT, you know, showing a pretty strong effectiveness when combined with therapy. And obviously, I think we'll start off with that distinction. You know, when MAT is done right, it is an assistance to therapy. It's not the treatment itself. Um, but, you know, it is very controversial. So why do you think it's still so controversial in the field, despite, you know, research showing its efficacy? Well, for me, and what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a lot of pressure um, being put on many different people. Um, from top to bottom, you're looking from a presidential standpoint, you're looking at politicians, you're looking at the local aspect within communities. And I think the controversy starts with us trying to develop a solution. And that solution right now um, is geared into the MAT format as being one of those alternative solutions. The fear, I think, within our community right now is is the fact that we're going to see a repeat of what the methadone clinics look like mm. and with, without being clinically driven there's a fear that clients are treated appropriately there's going to be little or no oversight and my personal opinion is that success rates are going to actually be a little bit lower than what's expected if there's not that clinical aspect involved with it uh, with that being said, I think a lot of the controversy also lies within our own communities, especially with 12-step communities, because a lot of us work in treatment facilities and we hold personal biases towards what's being sober and, and what's not, uh, what, what recovery looks like and, and what it doesn't. And um, I think we lie in the lines of looking in black and white mm. uh, versus, you know, solution-based modalities um, based on the statistics from medical professionals that have done research on this topic. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that we have to be really careful with, you know, in the field, you know, on the marketing end, we work with abstinence-based programs. We work with MAT programs, you know, um, so we, I, I guess I see a, a wider range than maybe someone running a center might see, but I, I, all our goals are the same. Our goals are to help people get better and recover and stay on the path to recovery. And so I think it's imperative among us as owners, as directors, as people working in the centers to, like you said, look at what's working. Right. And I think what's important, too, and, you know, you can put your perspective on this is we have to individualize treatment maybe a bit better than we are. Right. We can't do a one size fits all approach. And MAT might speak better to someone or work better for someone. And it might be a really poor solution for someone else. And so you mentioned that in um, some of our emails back and forth. So do you want to kind of add your perspective to that? Absolutely. Before I get into that, I, I kind of want to make something clear because medication assisted treatment is kind of a, a wide spectrum of many different things. Hmm. And I'm going to focus on the Suboxone piece of it because we, we could talk about, you know, Vivitrol, which is um, administered in a, intermuscular. Uh, we could talk about naltrexone, which are good antagonists, um, but I, th I think that should be geared in the aftercare plan. Um, but I think what the controversy stems from is the use of Suboxone and being administered within treatment centers. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think if used appropriately, and, and that's on us, right? Yeah. Because as, as CEOs and, and directors and, and owners, 
these lives are in our hands. So we have to do our due diligence. And I don't think the controversy would be that assessments are thorough and appropriate. And, and we really ask the questions that we need to with a patient before they walk through our doors. Um, because they are unique individuals and the disease is extremely complex. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, the tapers um, used in medication-assisted treatment aren't going to look the same based on, on the patient population that we deal with because they're going to be a little bit more high risk. Some mm. are going to have a more serious history of, of overdoses. Some are going to have, um, you know, co comorbid things going on with them or they have multiple diseases that they're dealing with. Um, so we kind of have to look at it in an aspect fact that the, these clients are coming in with complexities and we have to find a way to find the best solution for them um, to deal with the disease that they have. So jumping off of that then, you know, personally being in the centers, you know, what have you seen as the benefits of patients that are entering your MAT portion of the program? For me, um, especially being in Florida, because um, we get a lot of ne uh, negative publicity. I'm, I'm sure the patient brokering topic has come up and, and clients being funneled around to different treatment centers. Um, and, and that's on us um, as a collective group um, to kind of change that conversation because there's a lot of positive things happening. The benefits of what I see with medication-assisted treatment, it gives them a little bit more of an extended time to develop their foundation. So clients that come in and are very high risk and meet the criteria to be on medication-assisted treatment gives them a little bit more time where their cravings aren't as high to go out and relapse and use. Hmm. Um, I, I, I've seen them live and, and work and develop healthy relationships and become productive members of society. And the, the patient population that I deal with, you would never know if they're on medication-assisted treatment or not. And that's on us to, to monitor their medication and make sure that they're not only tapered appropriately, but going to be geared towards abstinence. Because abstinence is the main goal here. Uh, we're not looking for a long-term use uh, of this medication-assisted treatment. Um, and that's, that's integrated within the treatment plans when they walk through the door working with the medical and clinical staff. Yeah, and so maybe that's something we should explore because I, we've talked about that, and I think it's a big concern, and it's a very valid concern, that looking at it as strictly a medical model where it's some kind of cure-all, which we know it's not, is what we're seeing is, you know, general practitioners, even nurse practitioners are being licensed to provide Suboxone, and all they do is provide scripts, right? They're not providing counseling, they're not providing support, they're not even providing recommendations. It's just like, come in, get your script, we'll like make a little money on the side, and they send them on their way, and that's really problematic. It's extremely problematic, and, um, you know, for us to be, be able to do those assessments, we're looking at a population that meets that criteria. We don't want everybody to be on it. And I think that's where, you know, part of the controversy that we talked about earlier comes into play. And that's on us to deal with this patient population appropriately is to make sure that it fits that criteria before we put a patient on medication assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want everybody to be on it. I think that would be inappropriate. Like if I'm talking to a 19 or 20 year old kid 
he's never been to treatment before and he's coming down for his first time, the one thing that I'm not going to do is, is put him on a medication assisted treatment plan. I would rather refer him to the appropriate center that might deal with abstinence based treatment, 12 step programs, maybe a holistic approach. And he has to try those modalities first before we reach the point that we might offer medication assisted treatment if he has little to no success with the other modalities. Yeah. Yeah. I think going, always going back to that individual approach, right? Tailoring the treatment is really important. Um, I'm sure there are other centers out there that are happy to take your referrals. <laughs> so. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Well, something I maybe want to explore a little bit more about what we were talking about there is, you know, addiction has always had this weird relationship with mental health, right? Where it kind of falls under the same umbrella, but it's always been separate in terms of regulations and laws and practitioners and licensing and all that kind of stuff. And when we look in a therapy setting, if someone's got depression, anxiety, OCD, it's really, really normal to have them take an SSRI, you know, or some other kind of, um, you know, psychotropic or that's all right, some kind of like psychopharmaceutical, right, um, yeah. to help them along. Yes. But often, I think within the, the psychiatric space, it is considered lifelong, right? Whereas within the addiction yeah. space, we're trying to say that it's not. And so I think that's challenging from a regulation standpoint and just from the overall conversation. So just kind of want to dig into it a little bit. I mean, I obviously don't have answers here, um, but just wondering what you think about that difference between someone maybe being on an SSRI for the rest of their life, possibly, but looking at Suboxone and saying, well, we definitely want to taper them off. Well, for me, I mean, it, it develops the conversation that, you know, we treat other disorders and, and diagnoses in a way that we put them on medication. And when we're dealing with substance use disorders, um, all of a sudden when we want to treat it, everyone kind of um, goes away from that aspect and, and treating with it with a way of, of Suboxone. Um, I, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, we don't really know the time frame in, until they're assessed from a clinical and, and medical standpoint. And the one thing that I will say is I'm never, I'm not a prescribing doctor, and, and I don't have the power to say how long that taper is going to look like. All I can do is assess the patient on a week-by-week on a -week basis and have them come in and be thorough with the aspects of, of where he's at within his uh, treatment plan. You know, now a patient that comes in, he's a little bit more high risk. And, and let's say he's in his, you know, second or, or third month and he says, OK, my cravings are coming back. I'm extremely high risk of relapsing. I, I might extend that taper a little bit longer to make sure that he's not out on the street using heroin. Um, I, I have seen cases as well where someone has been completely tapered off. And they have come in and, and reported that they're on the verge of relapsing. And after clinical and medical assessments, that client has been put on maybe a low dose of Suboxone to ease those cravings a little bit, have a little bit more accountability and oversight from our staff. And he continues on the on his own personal journey and path recovery. Mm -hmm. And he ends up being recess, successful as a result. Um, yeah. So I think it's a useful tool that way. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting in the way that you're talking about it. So you've mentioned that 
often what you're using MAT for is especially people that are at high risk of relapse or high risk of overdose. Um, you know, people that have maybe failed in other treatment programs multiple times before. And again, if we look at the psychiatric space, so, I mean, we work with behavioral health um, centers across the U.S. and the U.K. and not just addiction treatment. So I kind of see both ends when I'm in our client centers. And, yes. uh, you know, from a psychiatric perspective, it's the same thing. It's not saying that, you know, the um, psychopharmaceutical is to cure. It's saying that, you know, these people are in such a difficult place that we need to get them up to a level where we can start having, you know, conversations and, and actually entering into counseling. So it sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing with uh, Suboxone is, you know, if we can get them to a certain level where we can start the counseling, it's actually going to aid that process. And so it's part of that solution rather than being the solution itself, right? Absolutely. And, and, and we don't want the, the solution to come from the medication itself. Yeah, uh, we we want the solution to come from the other values that we provide as as treatment providers and other facilities that work on these patients on a day to day basis. Um, we want them to do intensive work, and and we don't know what that time frame looks like sometimes until we can assess them and know that they're ready. Yeah, and and sometimes we can gear them off of of being off that medication, and sometimes some clients are geared for long term. Um, because we, at, at the end of the day, when you, when you look at a mother and you would give her the option, well, would you want your son to be on Suboxone long at a low dose and be a productive member of society? Or do you want to bury your son in a year or two? Yeah. I think we know what that option is going to be for her. Right. Um, and we, we have to take the same approach as the unfortunate thing is we're kind of backpedaling on the opioid crisis and, and dealing with solutions and dealing with these patients. And I think this is a valuable tool to be utilized in the aspect of kind of intervening um, with the crisis. Well, it's a really valid point from my perspective is, is someone has relapsed four or five times, right? Whatever they were doing before wasn't working. And I mean, it's the onus is on us as treatment providers to do whatever we can to help them. And that if that means trying something different, you know, we should probably be looking at that option. Well, there's a lot of solutions out there. And, um, you know, if, if someone does have that many failures and, and he comes across my desk and, and let's say it's been 13 or 14 times and I'm an abstinence-based treatment center, why would I send them to the same approach where they have the same modality? when I have other solutions out there for that patient yeah. to pursue. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we don't know if that's going to work or not in, unless that patient go, takes that route. Right. And if, if, if he doesn't succeed with medication assisted treatment, he has eliminated every excuse of why abstinence um, shouldn't work for that particular patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And something kind of going back a little bit, but you know, you mentioned the Suboxone as an assist. It's kind of a support maybe to help reduce cravings or to, um, yeah, just kind of eliminate those, those negative feelings, especially around withdrawal sometimes for people just getting on Suboxone. Uh, but often we get too focused on this medical aspect of the conversation, in my opinion. You know, at the end of the day, when we're looking at people suffering with addiction issues and substance abuse disorders, there's so much around it, right? Most of our clients coming in from a lot of spaces, they're, they're coming from a poverty setting, they're coming from a place where they really struggle with life issues, 
you know, I mean, most centers I walk into, one of the first things they teach uh, patients and clients is how to do laundry, how to cook, right? How to talk to their roommates. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, that's just super normal. This is part of the field. And so we, we often, I don't see this talked about enough, I think, is the fact that like, if I look at the places in the US with the highest rates of overdose and drug use is always the ones that have the highest levels of poverty, right? It's not saying yes. that addiction can't affect everyone from different backgrounds. But it's very, very clear from all the data and all the research that there is, uh, I mean, it's almost five times higher. Heroin, heroin use is five times higher among, you know, populations that come from a lower income. Those that are unemployed have a much, much higher rate of addiction or substance abuse disorders. And again, they've done the studies to show that that unemployment is not a result of the addiction, but it's actually the addiction is a result of the unemployment. Um, so really, really important to remember these social factors and environmental factors that come in and not just get too hung up on, you know, this medical piece, I think. Absolutely. I mean, we have to look at the demographics in the in the situation and, and the patients that come through our doors. Um, and that's really what we tackle from a clinical standpoint is those social settings that they're put in. At the end of the day, I think the most important question when a client first walks through my door is, are you hungry? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't take an approach a lot of times with, with love and care. We like the more aggressive approach. Um, but, but that's what they're used to. Um, they grow up in broken homes where they didn't have parents and they, right. and you're absolutely right. They, they had no mentors to teach them and how to navigate life. So they never learned how to do their laundry. They never learned how to cook. They don't know how to make their bed. Uh, they didn't have these kind of responsibilities that many of us were gifted with when we grew up. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it's on us to be able to teach these individuals on, on how to do so. Now, the problem with medication-assisted treatment and, and being utilized as a tool, and I think you hit a valid point, is there's, there's not a whole lot of resources uh, for that part of the population. You know, when we're dealing with poverty, and we're dealing with state insurances and, and clinics and in a way of setting up to be appropriate to treating these individuals. A lot of times they're not going to be able to access the care that they need. Yeah. Um, I, and I think mental health services, especially um, I deal with it down here in Florida because we're on the lower end of the spectrum on resources made available to this patient population. Mm -hmm. And I think it's extremely impo uh, important to kind of improve and grow within our communities for, to provide resources for these individuals. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think a lot of people are working on it and I think we're going to see a bright future, but I don't see that anytime soon. I, yeah. I, th I think it's going to take a while to be able to build that. Well, let's explore that business end of things, you know, and obviously so much of the field of addiction treatment is really guided by insurance reimbursements, right? Um, that's really the challenge and maybe also an advantage of MAT because the cost is much lower. You know, you can get a subscription for Suboxone on Medicaid, right? Um, and yes. It's not going to cost you anything. Now, you're not going to get the counseling services, which is the, the problem, right? Like Medicaid is not going to cover your yeah. counseling or it'll, it'll give you a ridiculous amount. Like our day rate in Indiana, I think is like 116. New Jersey is like $90. <laughs> I just had a, yeah. one of our clients in Wisconsin, they offered them an $18 an hour reimbursement for um, IOP. Like it's just yes. absolutely ridiculous, you know? So, I mean, that's a huge issue, but it's a completely different topic. Um, but kind of related to what you're doing, cause you guys are running MAT in your center. And so, you know, how do you do that in a way that that's profitable? 
I think I think we have to pay attention, um, especially since we're an all out of network facility. Uh, we have to pay attention um, to the patients that are coming through our doors, the medication that they're on. From a financial standpoint, I think for you know the operations side, CEOs and, and owners to pay attention on who's paying the copays uh, for their medications um, always uh, when they come in because you're looking at the bottom line. If you let those things lax, especially within your facility, you're eating those costs. Mm -hmm. And it might not seem like a lot right away because, you know, kind of what you're describing, the medication itself doesn't cost that much. But over time, if you're doing that with your entire patient population over and over again, um, you're kind of losing the value of, of, of being profitable as a business. Yeah. Um, now, now, with that being said, I, I think insurance companies are probably, you know, they're definitely headed in, in the direction that they want to see people on medication assisted treatment. You'll see a lot of treatment centers going that route. And I think they're going to probably give you more allowable days, you know, especially in the future. We haven't seen it quite yet. Uh, but just kind of forecasting here, if they're on medication assisted treatment, um, they kind of want them to stay stable within a facility and give them more days allowed to be able to be treated as patients um, because they're seeing them on that medication. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I think we're definitely headed in that direction. It's it's kind of a, a new topic in, in category. I think I think it's a little bit newer in Florida than it is up north and what you guys have seen uh, for years now. Um, but insurance companies don't like to pay in, uh, treatment centers in Florida based right. on our past history and what we've done down here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, our clients in California and Florida obviously are very strongly against MAT. I, I'm, we don't have any centers that we work with that are um, that offer it. But yeah, in the Northeast and the Northwest, it's a lot more common for sure. Um, there doesn't seem to be the same stigma around it that you see in other places. So yeah. one thing I wanted to kind of look at was, you know, that there, there is a stigma for sure around MAT within um, certain aspects of the recovery community or the treatment community. So as a national business development director, you know, have you seen or come across it when you're networking with other centers? You know, does that affect your relationships at all? I think if the conversation is appropriate, it has not affected my relationships. Um, the only relationships that it really affects for me is people that hold personal biases. Um, and those are usually people that are strong within the 12-step communities because uh, they don't look at a patient being on medication-assisted treatment as being sober. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the only relationships that are, are generally looked at or, or, or frowned upon um, and being seamless. But the way that I work with other facilities is this, is um, they're going to have those patients that are retreads or that come through. You know, you hear the jokes between patients, I'm a 0.6 or a 0.8. I've been here eight times. And those are the patients that we want to deal with. Um, and then kind of what I was describing before, that we get a lot of um, organic referrals and, and leads from other, other states and clients coming down. So if, if, a, if a client meets their modality, it's a way for me to refer from center to center because the one thing that I want to do is make a blanket statement that everyone should be on that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's inappropriate. And, and when you're asking, kind of drawing in the lines of being profitable, so everyone you know, wants to jump on the, on the map bandwagon, the one concern that I'll always have 
is the fact that we're just going to put everyone on the mat. And that client or patient rather wouldn't be appropriate to be on a medication assisted treatment plan. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the other business development guys respect that conversation and understand that from my perspective, I would love to see people on abstinence uh, based treatment and, and work 12 step programs or take a holistic approach. We just know that a lot of times those patients aren't successful with those kind of modalities. Yeah. Uh, so we have to look for another solution. And that's where I come into play. Yeah, that's good. And I think it's very much about setting the expectation with the patients as they come in, because sometimes patients come in with this mentality that like, well, I have a disease and it's for life and I can never change that. So I need to be on this drug for life. Right. Whereas we know, yes. I mean, we've seen it. The research is there. We see in our centers every day that, you know, if you develop the skills, you can live a very successful and fulfilling life in recovery without having to rely on, you know, Suboxone or something else. Absolutely. And I, I think that's why, if um, you know, we gear towards being abstinence based, especially um, it's a benefit to us because it, it's teaching them that we don't want to see the patients on a medication for long term. Uh, we don't want to have we don't want to see them have to wake up day in and day out and have to take the medication, you know, once, two times a day for life. Yeah. And if we get that in their heads early they usually jump on board with that aspect and they're like, okay, cool. So this is just for me to kind of develop some foundation, get my life in order, take care of my responsibilities, get integrated into a 12 step program, work with under other individuals. And then when I'm ready and I feel comfortable, you know, I can be tapered off and become abstinent and learn how to do so. Right. Uh, so you mentioned the 12 step programs that maybe sometimes have an issue with it. So the common, the common, um, way it's said is that you're switching one addiction for another, right? So how do you respond to that comment? My, my concern with this has been pretty heavy over time because we don't, like I said, we don't want these clients to be on it long term. Um, and so if, if we don't gear it towards switching one addiction to another, um and that kind of conversation like we're going to keep them on mat for life i think they're a lot more open to it um it, and it all depends on the tapers too and what's appropriate and what's not now if uh if i ran a medication assisted treatment program and put clients on 60 milligrams of suboxone i see where the concern is coming from because that client's not going to be as coherent or receptive to other individuals he's probably going to be nodding out in group and, and kind of appear that it looks like he's still addicted to a substance. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if I have a client on maybe two milligrams, you would never know that he's on it or not. Um, so he's kind of, he's taking it as prescribed and you know, the, the real alcoholic and, and old school, AA, I, I see a lot of individuals in those rooms that take medication as prescribed. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of guys that have been around for a long period of time and they, they describe it as such. I think if we get away from the biases of, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to another substance and, and geared towards abstinence, I think everyone can be on board with that. Um, but at the end of the day, they're just personal opinions. Um, we can't really decide what's best for someone's personal journey um, in a way that, that I'm guiding them into it. I have to leave that up to the professionals, you know, the medical and clinical staff to decide what's appropriate and what's not. Right. Um, I can't really rely on opinions because opinions at the end of the day have potential to kill people. 
Yeah, yeah, it's very true. You know, it goes back to that this weird dichotomy that we have between mental health and addiction where, you know, if I am in a 12-step meeting and I'm taking an SSRI for depression or anxiety, you know, how is that different from maybe taking Suboxone for now um, for my substance abuse disorder? You know, is it different? It's a good question to ask, I think. Well, I've, I've seen it a lot, too, and I've seen... Um you know, sponsors tell people or their sponsors to get off medication and then sometimes leads them into a relapse, mm-hmm. um, especially with like, you know, bipolar and they become manic. And the next thing you know, they're out on a pretty heavy run yeah. um, or they go through a cycle or it's the same thing with depression and, and someone's cycling and they decide that they want to use after that. I'm not a I'm not a doctor at the end of the day. So I think we always have to remember that. And that's something that I educate the patients on um, because it is a community that they're going to walk into. And some people are open and some people are not. And I, I truly believe that we need both sides of the equation because I think it progresses us into further education. And it progresses us into dealing with the patient proper population that's going to be appropriate. Um, and it kind of adds some fuel to the fire for people to you know, really open their ears and listen to what's really going on. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, there, as we're saying here, we need to, you know, individualize treatment, tailor it. And so that means that there's lots of rooms for different mentalities within groups and recovery support networks. You know, if you're not supportive of, you know, someone using MAT, I think that's perfectly okay. You know, you just need to find a different group that is supportive of it. I think the thing that we just want to look at maybe um, if we're looking at our own groups that we run, is are we stigmatizing people for it? You know, I think it's perfectly okay to say, hey, you know what, this is kind of who we are. Not sure if you're a good fit for that versus I can't believe you're taking that. That's awful. And then there's all the shaming and blaming going on, which is what we should be not doing, right? Well, absolutely. And I I think it also deters the client or the the patient in their process too. And and when they walk into those rooms, because it's kind of like a recreation of probably what their parents were like. Right. You know, yep. with their statement guilt, like, I can't believe that you're using heroin or I can't believe you're addicted to cocaine or whatever it may be. And and they feel the same way once they once they get sober and they might be on medication, but they're getting that same feeling. Yep. And then all of a sudden it's being looked at like I'm doing something bad or wrong. Um, yep. And then they're like, well, why not just get off the medication and, and go back out on the street? Is there there another option? Um, and kind of cycle themselves in the treatment industry um, and go to multiple treatments. And we've seen a lot of that down here. Yeah, I'm a big fan of progress, right? You know, like if you've stopped using heroin and you're off the street, that's progress. I mean, it might not be where we want you to get to, um, but it's a hell of a lot better than being on the street, you know, with a needle in your arm. Uh, and something that really interesting that I love, it's a big elephant in the room that nobody talks about, but you mentioned it was really, you know, we... A lot of us that have been through our our own addiction issues, um, we have addictive personalities, right? Like me, I'm obsessed with building my marketing agency. Like I work a lot and I love it, Um, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right, you know, but when I look at other people that have come through recovery, it's very similar. I mean, it could be food, it could be sex, social media is obviously a challenge for me because I, I, it's my work and then I do it at home, you know, and so everyone I meet, you know, has this where they tend to kind of substitute addictions and we always just kind of have it with us. And so maybe it's just finding the positive outlets like sports or work versus, <laughs> you know, something more negative. Absolutely. 
I mean, I'm, I'm addicted to the gym. It's, it's one thing that I've integrated into my own personal recovery and uh, uh, something that I integrate in my own personal life for health and wellness. Um, but I also have to be careful in the aspect that I'm not spending three hours a day <laughs> right. in the gym. Right. You know, um, it's the same thing with with gambling. I, I see a lot of, of people switch to scratch off tickets yep. or go to the casinos and, and they get caught up in big gambling debts and, and habits. Um, and it kind of deters their process. I mean, sex is always going to be a big one in our patient population um, and food. And it, it's tough. And it's something that we have to acknowledge and, and be present for in, in treating these patients. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree. I think we ignore it too much. We focus too much on the substance or, or whatever is at hand. But really, when we're giving them the cognitive tools and the skill sets, it's to address all of this because I think we all have a tendency to move to extremes in certain directions. You know, I mean, you're from Wisconsin. I mean, I know a lot of people that will go to Lambeau Field, you know, in the freezing winter with no shirt and just paint on, <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind right. of a thing. And I mean, there's a small portion of fans that get that obsessed and that obsession is okay. <laughs> Whereas you yes. know, getting obsessed with drugs is not. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely there. Uh, so always good to look at. I, it makes me laugh sometimes when I walk into some of our client centers and like all the guys are like ripped, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, wow, why yeah. are all these business development reps ripped? But that's it. I mean, they, they go to the gym all the time. So <laughs> you got to get off the steroids. You know? That's, that's <laughs> right. one thing that I, I tell everybody that um, to stay away from. I've seen little success with it. And it's uh, it's a health risk for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, th I think you hit um, a, a valid point there with just like anything else in life, when, when we're dealing with a medication-assisted treatment plan, especially clients being on medication, to allow them to not abuse that medication and teach them appropriately, mm -hmm. you know, to take their medication as prescribed, especially when it's in an outpatient setting. When they get to that point, it, it, it's on them because we're only observing at that point. You know, we're not just distributing that medication to them because it's their medication. Yeah. So they have to learn from that standpoint to take that medication appropriately. And hopefully we've, we've geared them towards that throughout the process when they finally get to that point to be very successful with it. Um, for us, it also deters the process. If they don't take their medication as prescribed one day, it gives us a little insight. Um, they might be thinking otherwise. You know, They might be gearing themselves for a relapse here. And, and we can kind of intervene uh, with that aspect from a clinical standpoint, which is kind of nice because it's 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 kind of like a, a tell, right? Mm -hmm. um, because if they don't come in and they don't take that medication, we know that there's something else going on and we can deal with it um, appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because you go back to that um, conversation we were having about uh, the environment and culture and everything. And you know, when you look at cultures that drink on a regular basis, Jewish culture, Spanish, Italian, that has like wine with lunch or dinner as a normal part of their, their habits, they have a much lower rate or much lower incidences of alcoholism because they grow yep. up learning moderation. You know, whereas yes. in the U.S., we, we tend to grow up, go to college and learn how to binge drink. <laughs> you know, um, at least that was my experience. You know, that's what got me into a lot of trouble. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, and then it's interesting, too, because you'll see they'll do studies versus, you know, Spanish, Italians and Jewish people that are living abroad. And then when they move to the U.S., 
And suddenly, like the second generation will actually have higher rates of alcoholism because they're they're adapting to U.S. culture rather than the home culture. Um, so always important to, I think, remember those expectations, your culture, the people around you and what they're doing has a huge impact on how you use or how you uh, moderate or how you stay abstinent. Absolutely. So um, uh, let's jump a little back to the business piece. You know, if you have recommendations for maybe owners out there saying, hey, MAT is becoming a big thing. Insurance is starting to provide reimbursement for it. And I think it's a good modality for us in our center. Um, how would you recommend they get started maybe, uh, you know, getting into a program in their own centers? I think this is the most important piece for me and especially advice being given to other centers out there. Um, I think it has to be medically driven. Um, so that's the first approach that you want to take to make sure that on the medical side, because that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with medication. Um, so the whole environment changes from that point on. So, I mean, it's always going to start at the top, but it's going to trickle down. So once, once they're on board and they're, and they're certified and you got everything set up, now you're getting into the complexity of the situation, right? Because your clinical staff has to be on board with mm -hmm. this aspect. Your tech staff has to be on board with this aspect. Your case managers um, to the client care advocates, to the alumni coordinators has to be on board with this aspect. So I think there's a lot of training that needs to be done with these individuals. Yeah. Um, and assessments need to be made because at the end of the day, uh, techs are gonna be put in charge of controlled medication. Um, and a lot of these techs, and staff members are in recovery themselves. Um, so you have to find out from their own personal perspective, are they gonna have a, a bias uh, against going this route and who's gonna be appropriate to be able to handle that and who's not gonna be appropriate. So you almost have to reintegrate the staff on getting on board and almost re-interview each individual on what their perspectives are um, because it's not something that you can just force people into. And if you don't believe in your program, you're your, your patient population is going to suffer. Um, so you have, you have to gear it in a way that says, okay, we're going to do this, but this is why we're doing it. Yeah. Um, it's for this very particular part of the population. And then, you know, centers with big censuses. Now you have to worry about the aspect. Do I separate, um, you know, the population or do I integrate them together? Right. And that can be worrisome for a lot of people. And these are decisions that are going to have to be made. The, the biggest advice that I could ever give is take your time. This isn't something that we jump into. It's not something we just decide to do. It's, it's something that we have to take our time with and, and really set up in a way that's going to be successful. Um, like I said, because otherwise the patient's going to suffer at the end of the day. Yeah, that's really good advice. You know, when we first started working with addiction treatment centers, a lot of them would want to just like launch some program, whether it was SEO or Facebook ads or Google AdWords back when those were working, you know, they're like, well, can you just launch this program and get calls coming in? And, you know, I hate doing that. What we want to do is we go in and we do a full on audit. We meet the team, we meet their clinical directors, their admission staff, owners, leaders, right? Because everyone has to be aligned for their marketing Absolutely. to work and combined with everything else, right? You've got to get the whole team on board. And so I, I love that you say that because I think too many people take that direction where they don't. And we've run into situations where, you know, we're seeing eating disorders on the website and you talk to the clinical staff and 
they didn't even know that that was on the website and they're like, well, actually I, I would not feel comfortable <laughs> providing counseling <laughs> for that. And so that's a huge disconnect, right? You've got to have it tied together. So it's really important to get the whole team on board, you know, and, and I just, I know some um, people that are diversifying from the nursing space, just bought a treatment center down in Florida, you know, and they're actually very supportive of Matt, but they talk to their clinicians and they're not. And so they respectfully decided not to integrate into the program now, you know, speaking to just what you said, if your team's not on board, it's definitely not a good idea to start with. So that's great. Um, any other recommendations for people looking to maybe add it into their program or their modalities? Uh, I think from a financial standpoint, you have to look at the patient population like this is, um, like I said before, you have to pay attention to the co-pays, um, especially from a financial aspect. And then you also have to be aware and present with the fact that that, that patient is gonna need aftercare. Mm. Um, so if, if their insurance terms and they're not able to pay for their medication, they don't have a job, you have to be aware of that because what are you going to do with that patient? Um, because if they're on six or eight milligrams of Suboxone, they're going to be in withdrawal. Right. Um, and if you don't prepare for that, that's on you. And these are some of the things that you have to consider, consider and acknowledge um, because we're looking for the full continuum of care. And, and it's our responsibility to make sure that that patient is taken care of after they leave our center. So it's referring them to doctors if they're still going to be on Suboxone, refer them to primary and substance abuse counselors and therapists um, and support groups. Um, it's making sure they have all the resources necessary available to them uh, to continue on, especially with medication-assisted treatment, because it can be dangerous. And if we're not set up appropriately for it, and in a way that we're looking out for the patient, they can end up suffering. And then you're going to lead them right into a relapse if you don't pay attention to those aspects. Hmm. Those are all really good points. And something else to point out that a lot of centers I found don't realize, but it's illegal not to collect the co-pays. Like that's a legal mandate if you're taking insurance. Yeah. So, you know, if you come in and have an audit done, you're going to be fined pretty extensively if they found out that you haven't collected your co-pays or if you offered to pay for a flight and didn't get the client to then pay that back. You know, all of that stuff has strong legal implications. So I always warn, you know, our, our clients about that because a lot of them don't. A lot of them just have like $2 million in accounts receivable <laughs> doesn't really work you know so interesting we're on the same page with that <laughs> yeah for sure well jason i really appreciate all the time today i mean it was a fascinating discussion i know um i'm sure for our listeners too you know there's obviously a lot of questions we're not here to answer them but just to provide different perspectives on it and, and our ultimate goal is just to help as many people as we can right so uh first you know can you tell us how to get in touch with you and your center if we wanted to do so <clears throat> absolutely <clears throat> you can go on our website at daylightdetox.com um, you can contact me directly um, through social media if you want to find me on LinkedIn. My, my name is Jason Tushinsky. Um, I'll give you my email as well, uh, jasont at daylightrecoveryfl.com. And my phone number is 561-325-5994. I'd be happy to answer any questions that anyone might have. Uh, whether you're CEO or owner or another business development rep, um, or you're looking for some uh, someone that just needs some answers. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Before we sign off, any parting words? I think for my parting words is if you're looking to go 
to the medication assisted treatment route, do your research, talk to individuals, really create a plan before you integrate it within your own treatment centers and do your due diligence. Cause at the end of the day, we're looking out for this patient population. Um, and we really have to be strong as a collective group being development guys, CEOs and owners with our responsibility to making sure that the patient's taken care of um, in the best way possible. Because we work in the industry of healthcare and we're healthcare professionals. Um, so it always needs to be that dialogue and have healthy conversations is looking for the positive avenue on how we can develop more solutions for these clients. Great. That's a great note to end on. Again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Please reach out, reach out to Jason if you do have any questions for him or would like to get in touch. Um, again, my name is Nick Jaworski, and this is the Recovery Executive Podcast brought to you by Circle Social Inc., uh, digital marketing and growth experts within the addiction treatment behavioral health space. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, basically anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next time.